Hey guys, welcome to the Sisyphus 55 podcast. Today we're with Mistyverse, um, another philosophy YouTuber who makes really, really great content. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, well, firstly, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here on the Sisyphus 55 podcast. But yeah, I'm, I'm just a YouTube creator who makes short philosophy videos that try and weigh in on, on the meaning of existence and life and things like that. So yeah. Yeah, today you just did one on the the self. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, no, definitely check out his uh, stuff. Very interesting. So today we're going to talk about something that's kind of an extension from the last time I was on your podcast when we were talking about the good life and how to live a meaningful life. Yeah. It was more of a normative uh, discussion. Today we're going to talk about why do we do anything at all? What kind of pushes people? Um and before we get into that, do you kind of have any sort of uh, personal theories as to why we decide to do anything at all? I mean, it's a really good question, because if you look at it from the kind of Albert Camus perspective of absurdism uh, in a universe that's so sort of apparently meaningless, um, it's a real puzzling question as to why we do anything at all. What's the point of doing anything? Um, but I personally tend to think that the absurdist route can be a little bit hopeless. So I, my personal theory falls more in line with existentialism and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. So he said that existence precedes essence. So we exist, that is the bare fact of the universe. We just, we are here. And it's from there that we can decide to make our own meaning and uh, come up with what we want ourselves to be. And I think that sort of striving for authenticity is a massive factor, um, I would say personally, as to why I choose to do anything. And uh, yeah, why I choose to do the things I do, sort of um, knit my own meaning out of the fabric of the meaninglessness of the universe and try and create something out of it that um, wasn't there before. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And I think existentialism, probably more than any other branch of philosophy, provide some of the most concrete answers, if you can call it that, regarding why we decide to do anything at all. Because you're right, when we kind of peel back the curtains and look at everything for what it appears to be, which is kind of meaningless and indifferent to human existence, it can be kind of weird to come up with an actual reason to get out of bed in the morning to um, pursue certain goals, because it kind of feels like in the, the kind of expanse of the universe and in our own kind of impermanent existence it doesn't really seem to matter as much and existentialism kind of you know uh accepts all of that for what it is and says nonetheless we should kind of keep striving and 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 in speci specifically in the sartre and existentialist um sense to look for some sort of personal authenticity um and to not act in bad faith yeah definitely i mean you see it in uh, the subject I'm studying a lot of at the moment at university is uh, phenomenological psychopathology. And you see it with such cases as like depression. Um, the, the bare meaninglessness of everything seems to weigh down on you so much that it overpowers you. And it kind of prevents you from doing anything at all uh, or anything meaningful or anything that you regard as meaningful. And uh, everyone has had, I'm sure, certain experiences of being depressed and sort of have some idea as to what it's like. Um, but yeah, the existentialist would say, 
yeah, it, it is uh, difficult. It's very difficult. But the idea of making uh, a meaning for yourself out of, well, nothing really, I think that's quite a fascinating idea. It's sort of like breaking one of the fundamental laws of physics. It's making something out of nothing. And that something is whatever you really want it to be. And I think that's quite quite a scary idea, but also quite a liberating idea. Yeah, and could you... Uh, briefly explain what um, phenomenological psychopathology is, because that does sound very interesting. Yeah, don't make me say it too many times, though, because it's a bit of a tongue twister. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so the phenomenal aspect of that means how things appear to you subjectively. Um, So phenomenology deals with the kind of structure of human experience and how we relate ourselves to the world. And then the psychopathology aspect is the aspect of kind of disease and disorders. So phenomenological psychopathology is looking at the structure of different mental disorders. And, you know, you see Mm. things like um, depression and anxiety and things like this. The literal structure of your world changes. It's not just something that happens inside you. It's uh, what phenomenologists call shared interaffectivity. I always have trouble with that word. Um, (laughs) It's literally the disease isn't in you kind of the diseases in your world and literally between you and other people. Um, so mm. I think it's a lot more serious than some people give it credit for because it's literally like your whole world is crumbling down. And of course there's different types of depression. People become depressed for different reasons. Um, but I think the one we're talking about here is a kind of almost intellectualized form of depression where people are very weighed down by the pure intellectual fact that the universe is meaningless. Um, but yeah, that's the sort of definition that I'd give for that. Oh, that sounds very, I've never heard of that. So it sounds like a very interesting field and kind of a good branch between uh, philosophy and psychology just in general. Yeah, definitely. Um, so just to back up the conversation a little bit <clears throat> um, after kind of proposing a sort of, I guess, motivational theory of why an individual would get up in the morning to um, kind of in an existentialist sense to you know, find personal meaning uh, seek out some sort of authenticity. Um, just more broadly, the phenomenon of boredom is quite interesting. And, um, Pascal, one of his famous quotes that you see quite a lot ever since, uh, we've been kind of in this world of lockdowns and having to stay inside and, um, so forth. He says, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And that is interesting because um, on the surface, it makes sense because no one would really want to sit in a room alone. But the question is, why is it so difficult for us to kind of not do anything, to to simply just uh, not preoccupy ourselves with um, uh, entertainment or uh, some sort of productivity or sociality? Do you, do you have any sort of... Um. Uh, Yeah, well, I I think you began to touch on it um, a little bit towards the end of what you were saying there. Um, I think I don't want to sound all like highfalutin and moralistic and everything like that. But I think in the in the 21st century, we're so used to having everything immediately available all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that there's there's always a cure for boredom as such with Facebook or Instagram or YouTube. Um, But definitely don't stop watching Sisyphus 55's videos, by the way. That wasn't an excuse. (laughs) Um, Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, there's all these things on the internet that we can distract ourselves with. And there's always something that we could be doing. Um, but I think the problem comes when we trick ourselves into thinking that just 
distracting ourselves from being bored with anything is better than just being bored in its pure state. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. Well, there's a, um, it was a recent study where this quote kind of reemerged from the science, uh, journal Science, um, and it found that people will generally choose to self-administer an electrical shock rather than sit quietly in a room alone with their thoughts. And so that's, I think you're, you're, you're right, but there it, there is almost a certain severity to it that it almost seems like fundamental to human nature that we find it very difficult to be alone um, with with ourselves. Yeah, I don't know if there's maybe you know something about this. If there's like a evolutionary story behind it, um, mm. I'm not sure. But this tends to be the reason that I'm skeptical of very utopian ideas where all our needs are taken care of and all we live for is pleasure. Like I've just finished reading um, H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. And there's Oh, this, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a fantastic book if uh, any of the listeners haven't read it. But uh, yeah, he travels to the year 802,701, I think it is. And it, these... It was good memory. Yeah, well, I have only just read it. Don't give me that much credit. <laughs> but um, yeah, the human race, they've sort of devolved into this elfin species where they just live for sheer pleasure. They just eat fruits and vegetables and they frolic around but they're all kind of really childlike and stupid because they haven't got anything to challenge them and they've got Mm. nothing to do. And I think this is where that idea of kind of self-administering electric shocks come from is that we just can't stand nothing to do. And I think HG Wells' book is a sort of, it's a very dystopian book in that sense, because this is what's going to happen if all of our needs are met all the time. So there's, yeah, yeah. Uh, like Victor Frankl's like logotherapy kind of um, kind of hits on this, that he doesn't actually think that some sort of homeostasis being reached some sort of balance, like, like that's a very good example, like the kind of uh, utopian society and the time machine. That's not actually very um, conducive to uh, human existence. And it's because he thinks that meaning is kind of arrived through this sort of tension between what we want and what we don't quite have yet. Yeah. And it's actually not just the fulfillment of things. It's actually the striving towards the fulfillment of things. And I think it also maps closely to kind of uh cheeks and uh kind of flow psychology that we kind of reach a state of flow in between this stage where a certain task is challenging enough for us, but not too challenging. Um, and then it also is uh it requires like a certain amount of, uh, yeah, no, I think, I think it's just this, it's this kind of balance where it's just challenging enough, but not, not too challenging. So it's this, we kind of need almost like a little bit of existential tension Mm. in order to not be bored. And then if you live in a society that's completely utopian and everything's, uh, given to you and all of your basic needs are filled. Yeah, you're right. That's probably, uh, not something we'd actually probably want. Yeah. I think it's, um, that's the reason all these psychologists, well, maybe not psychologists, but they always tend to say, uh, you, if you're reading a book or whatever you're reading that's just above your level, that's that's the right place to be, not not so massively far ahead that you don't have a clue what's going on and not something you're just comfortable with. And I think it's this idea that we, we like one foot in the familiar and then we also like one foot in the unknown and... Yeah, yeah, it's this tension. You've got, to, you've got to walk the line between the two. And that's where I think what Viktor Frankl would say our meaning comes from. It's, it's walking the line 
very carefully between the familiar and the unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. But it probably maps on closely to a, like the hedonic treadmill and that we kind of only have a certain like baseline of happiness and striving for things after a certain, like if, if we attain a new car that we really wanted, we'll enjoy it initially and then we'll kind of reach the same level of happiness. There's not a lot of things in our life that seem to actually um, increase our baseline happiness. We always kind of go back and once we go back to that baseline, it makes us kind of start wanting things again. So we keep pursuing things. And so it's this kind of, I mean, it's a bit sad because it's this realization that maybe you'll never actually be, be fulfilled, but finding the fulfillment in the pursuit itself is probably walking the line. Um, is probably a good way to think about it. Yeah. So do you think um, our experience of boredom maps on to this sort of baseline state of happiness that the hedonic treadmill talks about? Um, well, I think that uh, we can actually look at like Schopenhauer um, yeah. in this regard, because he, he talks about how there's kind of two poles in human life and one is boredom and the other is human need or like want or desire. Um, and that we're always in the pursuit of trying to capture what we desire. Um, and then once we succeed, we realize it doesn't give us satisfaction um, like we had anticipated or after a certain while we kind of lose the satisfaction. Um, and then at this point we develop boredom and then we go again and we pursue it again. So I think that like even before the hedonic treadmill was a concept, Schopenhauer was already very much uh, kind of discussing this association with boredom and this pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Well, as a as a pessimist, you'd expect him to be <laughs> quite hot on that trail. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, so uh, I I do believe that that boredom because there is something very painful about it, but it's very weird if you think about it in the big picture that we're pursuing these things, and the product is more often than not boredom after a certain while. Um, like if we're pursuing sort of material things or um, a certain a job position or something like that after a certain while, even though we maybe have tricked our brains into thinking that it's actually going to lead to a long and meaningful existence. We kind of go back to this sort of baseline and then we get bored and then we want to pursue other things. So it would make sense to maybe focus more on the, the pursuit. And I mean, Schopenhauer's kind of solution was just to be very ascetic and like, do nothing and have very little pleasure and it becomes uh he he quite like buddhist uh teachings and kind yeah. of eastern philosophy in that regard so do you think i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this do you think boredom as a concept is more characterized by a lack of something or do you think boredom is a thing in itself yeah because I, I mean if we're taking schopenhauer's definition it's uh a thing kind of yeah in its or no it's it's a it's a it's because of something it's it's when we experience the worthlessness of existence um so i guess it's kind of a a phenomenological like product of that um kierkegaard kind of takes it as a thing in itself it's like this terrible thing to kind of avoid at all costs um they both kind of talk about this sort of emptiness and worthlessness so I guess the, the way to characterize boredom is is um, something kind of a zero sum, something that's characterized by its emptiness, by its nothingness. Yeah. 
Um, and then we're constantly trying to fill it. So I guess it's this, it's this vacuum, um, that more or less is, seems to be, a very, um, consistent with like an idea of human nature. Yeah. But what, what do you think of, uh, do you think it's, it's a kind of a product of something or do you think it's, it's a, like a state in itself? I think my personal definition, definition would align more with Sartre because he was a phenomenologist as well as an existentialist. And one of the things he said was that you can most definitely perceive a lack of something as a positive thing in itself. So I think he gives the example of waiting for his friend Pierre at the cafe because he visits cafes all the time. And Mm. one time Pierre's not there. And it's not just the fact that Pierre's not there. It's that Sartre experiences Pierre as not being there as a positive thing. Um, Hmm. So I would say, whilst we generally assume that boredom is something to be escaped from, we do experience it as a sort of pure state in itself. Mm -hmm. If not, like inevitably you do have to um, characterize it by its relationship to other things. So you characterize boredom in relation to distraction or in relation to productivity or or something like that. But um, yeah, I think your definition of what boredom is, is probably dependent on how you choose to color it yourself, whether you see it as a bad thing or whether you see it as an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I guess Schopenhauer, it was more of like a, he saw it as a bad thing, but kind of a natural thing. Um, and Kierkegaard saw it as a bad thing and perhaps something that he could move from in some state. I would be of the personal opinion that boredom is necessary I think especially nowadays, going back to what you said about how we kind of live in a society that's very um, distractible and constantly stimulating, and it's probably healthy to actually find some sort of uh, comfort in being alone with your thoughts. And I think going back to that experiment about people choosing to um, shock themselves rather than just sit quietly in a room shows kind of an unhealthy um, coloring of boredom as like potentially the greatest evil to experience something that you really don't want to experience. And I don't think that's healthy. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose that begs the question, um, what do you do when you're bored? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it depends because I do, I do think that there is kind of two types of boredom. There's the, um, boredom that you plan for, which can be kind of, that's, that's something that's a little bit difficult to do and probably something a bit, uh, counterculture, yeah. is that we do need times to just kind of, you know, not really do anything, kind of be alone with our thoughts. So, I mean, meditating or just uh, sitting around or just kind of just trying to do as little as possible. Um, that, I think, is healthy. But then there's also that sort of what I think you're talking about, that boredom that, uh, you know, the internet goes off or, uh, you know, you're on a really long road trip or something like that, something that you didn't really plan for. And that, that could be, I, I generally strive to kind of embrace that and be kind of, uh, you know, oh, this is another kind of moment where I can kind of just, you know, introspect and like focus on my, uh, focus on myself a little bit and enjoy the moment. Um, but I mean, I, I'd, I'd be lying if I didn't say I also just go on Instagram and like, uh, (laughs) you know, play a game on my phone and, uh, 
because uh, it is it is it is very difficult one of the one habit that i've been trying to break is that i i go on my phone um before i go to sleep yeah and i know it's not good for me because you know you're like scrolling reddit and stuff and you read all this like bad news or twitter or something like that and uh you just you get you get anxious um and you're constantly switching between like articles and posts um it's probably not good for you like to go to sleep and you wake up with your phone you're also you know, instead of kind of enjoying the like the few moments in like bed where you're just kind of alone with your thoughts, you immediately go on your phone, check notifications. Um, yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it is. It, I I feel the 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 power of it, like the strength of it. Yeah. Um, do you ever do that thing where you're kind of just mindlessly scrolling through apps on your phone, and then you'll like close Facebook, and then you'll open Facebook again, like yeah. straight away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, no, you you really feel like a like a lab rat, like you're just you're just conditioned to just keep uh, pressing the same like five things. It's a, yeah, it's I don't know. I'm I'm trying to break it. How do how do you uh, kind of deal with with boredom? Um, well, I'd be lying if I said I didn't check my phone as well. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying I'm trying to become more mindful. Um, just kind of sit there in the moment and look at my surroundings, take note of what's there, take note of what it feels like to see the things that you're seeing. Because there's the, mm-hmm. there's a difference between the things you're seeing and what it feels like to see those things. And I think it, it brings yeah. me yeah, great no, that's focus, a, just kind of... Well, no, yeah, go on, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, like, uh, I, th- I think you're, you're definitely onto something there. Like, like actually internalizing that you're in the moment, like really like forcing yourself into this moment, like to be as present as possible is such a crucial skill. Um, and I, I like Wittgenstein, he, he talked about, um, one of the few times he goes off and, and it almost seems a little bit mystical is he talks about how, um, kind of the, the present is like the eternal and that like, um, kind of life or eternity is kind of given for those who can actually live in this like eternal now that can actually like fully embrace this uh, present moment for all it is. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a really beautiful way to look at it, I suppose. Cause I mean, no matter how mundane your surroundings might be, you'll never see that again. There's only this one moment right now and then it's gone. You know, there's always like, mm-hmm fresh slices of present being added to the past and the past always grows and the future is always there yet to come. And yeah, yeah, I think it's nice just to sit there and just breathe and feel what your body feels like inside, feel what the environment feels like, what it feels like to you. Yeah. I think it can be quite um, relaxing. Yeah, no. So I I think we can both agree that boredom is a, a constructive experience and it's probably something that um, is a sort of worthy challenge to um, kind of build up some sort of mindfulness techniques um, that it kind of exists and it kind of encourages you to actually um, maybe fully, maybe not because, because now I'm kind of wondering if uh, there's boredom, but would you consider like uh, someone in deep meditation, not doing anything, would they actually be bored? Because what we might be talking about is this sort of vacuum in which, you know, and maybe not a very pleasant state that we're bored and we're kind of anxious to do something. And that focusing on the present moment is still an escape from this boredom because boredom kind of seems like a sort of halfway place between, um, full 
present moment and this sort of anxious uh, kind of sense of needing to do something and, and this sort of dread to to just fill your mind with anything. Yeah, I suppose that's a good point, because, I mean, if you're like meditating for lack of a better word, then you're doing something. You're not bored, are you? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. That's really difficult. Um, I guess it, it once again depends on how you define boredom. I mean, I guess, like you said, if you're in the middle of a long road trip or something, or, or you find yourself with a stretch of time and there's just nothing to do, um, I guess letting your mind wander doesn't really uh, count as meditation if you're not paying sort of attention to it just kind of right just just existing <laughs> yeah and i i mean there is a lot of accounts of like uh i mean like nietzsche and kant they they love just taking walks and they weren't really meditating but they were letting their mind kind of just wander um and that does seem kind of like a default state of ours um so so maybe that's kind of the that that's kind of the more positive side to boredom is that you can kind of end up <clears throat> in these trains of thought that you wouldn't normally arrive to um, when you're deep at work or even when you're meditating, because you're right, meditating, you're very focused on the present. You might experience some great positive affect. There is something kind of anxious. Um, and maybe because of this anxiety, there's some creativity that comes from being truly bored. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you want to go into discussion about uh, creativity or anything, but I don't know if it's the same for you, but I often find some of the best ideas that have then become videos or scripts or poems or things like this come from when I'm just not really trying to think about doing anything at all. It's just, I'm just sort of there and my mind's wandering and a thought will will somehow relate itself to an unrelated thought and then things start following on and then it builds from there and it, it sort of becomes something out of nothing. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's, uh, I mean, if you're if you're of some sort of creative mind, you're constantly looking for stuff to kind of um, stimulate stimulate your thoughts, stimulate your brain, and you know you're probably always thinking of, ooh, what's like a cool project? You're trying to find patterns, you're trying to find analogies, um, new ways of sort of communicating ideas, and when you're when you're you know alone with your thoughts, it's like very it's probably working overtime because it doesn't have anything else to do. I, I definitely experience the same thing. Like if I'm, you know, uh, having a shower or working out or just taking a walk or it's just a just a boring day, I'll usually find something. And you're right. Those are usually the times that are the most kind of um, creative for me is when I'm the most bored. Yeah. I mean, I guess then it comes down to the question of, as soon as you find something productive to do with your boredom, can you still call it boredom? And yeah, I, I don't really know. Yeah, because yeah, because there is always that kind of uh, we could we could talk about all of the the benefits of boredom, but we might just be talking about beneficial strategies to counteract boredom. Mm. Um, boredom might just be this, you know, especially if you're creative or productive, a sort of necessary evil um, that we kind of almost have adapted certain habits that are are beneficial um to our everyday lives and our careers and and so forth um simply to counteract it um and i mean that that could that could also just be a a theory that um maybe goes back to pascal's quote is that you know all of our motivations stem maybe even more than from trying to find meaning or authenticity than from uh kind of avoiding 
this this sort of anxious, uncertain boredom, this kind of feeling of um, maybe like you could call it psychological nihilism, where there's just nothing to do. You don't know what to do. Yeah. Or uh, maybe thought I've just had is that there might not be such a thing as boredom or we might not really be bored a lot of the times when we say we are. We just delude ourselves into thinking so because we don't have these beneficial strategies that help us avoid it. So it could be the Mm. case that we spend, you know, large portions of our life and we say, oh, I'm so bored, there's nothing to do, I need need to be doing something, otherwise I'm going to go crazy. But actually, yeah. we just we just lack the adequate coping mechanisms and strategies to get out of that situation. Well, that kind of goes on to um, kind of a, a very close, I don't know if you'd call it an ally or an enemy of boredom, but procrastination is that we do have so many things that we can do, especially nowadays, that it's kind of weird to say that you're bored because you can always just go on YouTube or learn a language or call somebody or, you know, take a walk, you can constantly be doing things is that boredom might be kind of a a less constructive technique um, that people use in order to procrastinate. They say that they're bored, but they really do have things that they could do or could be doing. Yeah. But I I think that's where um, you were talking about how there's this kind of gnawing anxiety that comes with being bored. I think it stems Mm -hmm. from the fact that we know full well cognitively that there's so many things that we could be doing. You know, I could download Duolingo and I could try and revive my GCSE Spanish knowledge, <laughs> or I could actually <laughs> learn to play the guitar or something. I could do that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I'd, I'd, it's easier to go on Instagram, you know, and that's where we get that sense of guilt and anxiety from. Maybe that's what happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you think that a certain amount of it is that kind of uh, like, as Kierkegaard says, like anxiety is the dizziness of choice that we're very, we have so many choices now, especially with like smartphones and uh, like uh, the internet that we can, we can really just do anything at all. And it makes us harder. It makes it harder to choose anything in particular. I don't necessarily think it's the fact that we have too many choices, although we probably do have too many choices, definitely too many than one can do in a lifetime. Um, Mm -hmm. I just think it's the fact that they're so easy and, you know, we can do anything online within a couple of clicks. And right. it, it's the fact that when we when we don't do that, we then kind of fail to meet up to our expectations that may be higher than what can be reasonably said to do for ourselves. But um, yeah, I think it's the fact that these things are so easy, easily done online, and yet we we still can't draw within us from the well of courage to do so. Now, now why do you think we can't uh, like draw from this well like why 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 aren't we perfectly rational and just decide to uh you know go on instagram and just kind of procrastinate and say that we're bored when maybe we do have stuff to do um that's a good question i think it probably i think it's a platonic metaphor of this kind of carriage that's led by reason and passion and mm-hmm. um you know, like Hume says, uh, reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions. And so I think rationally, we know that we perhaps should be utilizing our time and optimizing it more. And we can recognize cognitively that that's a good thing to do and that we should do that. Um, but our, I wouldn't so much call it passion, I suppose, but maybe it's maybe habits, a better word for it. Um, right. 
you know, in, in combination with all the addictive nature of social media, you know, that's how it's designed and everything to keep us on there for longer. And I just think that side is much more easily appealed to than the rational side, even though we know full well what we could be doing, the passions and the habits take it a lot easier. That's yeah, that's, that's a good point. I think it kind of, uh, it's similar to, to Bertrand Russell in the conquest of happiness. He talks about how, um, before, like if we wanted to go get food, the act of hunting was very closely tied to, um, getting food and surviving. Um, if we wanted to reproduce, then the steps to reproduce were a lot, uh, closer. I don't exactly know how cavemen would have, uh, uh, courted each other, but it was a lot, probably a lot easier than setting up like a Tinder profile and, uh, getting your friends to take a bunch of photos of you and like appealing, uh, angles. But he talks about how like society has kind of went to this sort of, um, we do this in order to do this in order to do this in order to do this. And we're so far removed from these like basic needs that we're trying to fulfill, um, that we can kind of end up, you know, uh, feeling very unhappy. And, and this kind of ties into uh, sort of maybe procrastinating about these things is that you forget um, kind of why you're doing them. And, you know, if you go on Instagram, it's uh, I mean, there it, there's a lot of entertaining novel things going on and it kind of probably stimulates a whole bunch of uh, different psychological needs you feel probably need to belong, um, seeing like attractive people, um, being seeing something aesthetically appealing that's just a lot more quicker into the chase than maybe going to that job in order to make a certain amount of money in order to uh, buy these things um, in order to impress uh, like a girl or um, in order to, you know, develop some cool group of friends that like it's it's just a it's just a more quick uh, kind of shortcut. Uh, and it's also just more emotionally appealing it does it's not so taxing on your emotions that you kind of have to persevere um through all of these things in order to get the same benefit yeah i think there's definitely i hadn't heard that uh bertrand russell theory before i quite like that i i think there's such like an element of performativity involved nowadays with all these things like like you said um with the tinder profile like it's much easier than that in real life but i think you know recourse of habit and things and the ease of access with which we have them, it gives us a sort of bypass around what mm -hmm. we perhaps should be doing. Like maybe we can achieve the same level of uh, happiness and contentment and fulfillment um, by doing something. We don't, we don't need to take that route. We can just do something much less, much more basic, much more mm -hmm. like tightly ingrained with our innate human psychology. And it will give us just the same amount of pleasure, but we're so used to doing something in a certain way and, in accordance with, you know, the kind of performativistic, fragile architecture of the society, Western society we find ourselves in. And mm -hmm. it, it just could be so much simpler. And this is where I think boredom can come in handy because it gives us this sort of stretch of time in order to analyze our priorities and kind of take stock of what we believe, what we, what we feel strongly about, what we don't feel strongly about. I think it just allows us to to take stock and maybe these things that we are putting so much effort and time into, like curating the perfect Instagram profile or getting those right photos for Tinder and getting the perfect bio for Facebook, 
um, makes us realize that maybe we don't need those things and we can be happy in a much more minimalistic way. Yeah, no, that that's a very good point. It, it, it might be a bit of a, an aside, but it is reminding me of, did you ever read a Descartes error by Antonio Damasio? No, I haven't. It's a, it's about, um, he was this neuropsychologist and, um, he brings up the whole, um, I mean, it wasn't just Descartes, but, um, a lot of, uh, philosophers believed in this sort of reason comes before emotion. And, uh, so kind of a counteract of Hume's, um, reason is a slave to the passions. Um, and he noticed, um, it was with some sort of patient that had some, uh, brain damage, I think in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex where Good memory. he was, <laughs> we, um, cause we had to, we had to remember that for our classes <laughs> like every single year, but, uh, and I might still be wrong, but it was, uh, the region of the brain that was, very um focused on kind of value judgment and emotions and uh, it had less to do with uh, rational intelligence it had more to do with moral reasoning yeah and he this guy had his uh, brain damaged and it appeared um that he was completely fine for a while despite having this chunk of brain completely destroyed and then over time realized that uh they realized that he had huge issues with making just basic moral judgments um, by just, uh, you know, he ended up losing his wife. He ended up losing his job. He became incredibly uh, sexually impulsive. And it was, it was interesting because someone around uh, someone like Descartes would have argued that this kind of taking of the more emotional, passionate side of the brain out would leave you with an incredibly rational human being. And it showed that a lot of our reasoning and rationality stems firstly from this sort of uh, maybe irrational moral reasoning. Yeah. And it, it does, it, it probably plays a huge part in procrastination. And what I was saying before with this kind of separation of events in order to reach a certain need being fulfilled is that our emotions our emotional reasoning probably just can't handle this long sequence of, you know, if you're a PhD student that you have to do this and this and this and this to get a career, it makes way more sense to just go on Instagram. You're just fulfilling those things a lot more quickly. And, and I, I think that's an important consideration to take in whenever you're painting a picture of human nature is that it is very likely that our passions, um, rule over our uh, reasoning. Yeah, I think, especially in Western philosophy, there's this whole tradition of the man of reason, and that man is a rational animal. And, mm. you know, maybe reason is the thing that separates us from the rest of the animals, if indeed we are separated from the rest of the animals. Um, we have the capacity for reason. But I don't think that's any reason to suggest that it's uh, it rules over the emotions. I really don't think that's the case. I mean, you know, you look at philosophers all the way back to Plato and he's like, um, you know, the, the proper man's soul is ruled by reason, by the, by the man over the, um, the many headed beast. Um, he'd say that. Right. And there's this, there's this sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, all of Western philosophy has been basically just simping for reason. <laughs> and 
I, yeah, I I don't think there's any reason why that should be the case. Like you said, um, the the passions we have, they're just so used to getting stuff done quickly and with as little effort as possible. And yeah, I agree with you. I think that really most definitely needs to be taken into account before you can have mm-hmm. even a semblance of a complete picture of humanity. Yeah, I mean, there's that interesting um, theory in moral psychology by Jonathan Haidt that's he basically argues that all of our moral um, principles stem from a very irrational um, kind of evolutionary um, kind of principles that, so the principle of, of authenticity or the principle of um, kind of cleanliness, these are kind of, if you actually go back to a certain point, they're not very justifiable. And he uses the example of, um, two, uh, two sisters that, um, decide to have an incestuous relationship with each other. Mm. Um, and they have, you know, no STDs and they come out of it. The, the, their, their relationship actually helps them, um, emotionally more like bond more as sisters and that a great majority of people would, find this whole kind of storyline to be very morally disgusting, but it's very difficult to um, kind of explain why, because there's no risk of giving birth. There's no risk of uh, disease. And if there is a kind of emotional psychological risk that seems to be cleaned up. And I mean, this is the part that's kind of a bit more um, up in the air. But at least within the story is that they actually become closer um, emotionally. And he says that this just stems from these kind of basic evolutionary um, moral ideals that have been built into our emotional uh, neuroarchitecture where stuff like incest would be considered taboo um, plainly. And then if you find little sort of exceptions, it's very hard to explain why it would be uh, disgusting. But it nonetheless t- kind of taps into this sort of primal uh, moral evolutionary uh, rule that most of us share. Yeah, I think I can't remember the name of the novel, but there's a Russian author with a very similar premise. I think it's uh, a much older man and a much younger girl get into a relationship and they become closer as well. Oh, is it Lolita? Yes, that's it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Lolita. Yeah, Nabokov. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think, yeah, it's very difficult to explain precisely what's wrong with it. And other than perhaps an appeal to emotion. So, you know, maybe we're more guided by emotion than we are by reason. I think in a lot of cases that's quite evident. Um, but I think you can, you can sort of demonstrate this by just introspecting. Like we don't think, well, obviously, you know, thinking requires some amount of reason in order to do it. But we don't think using kind of, you know, abstract mathematical principles or forms or, you know, principles of non-contradiction and things like this. We don't think like that. We think using kind of language more like, oh, I really like this. I don't like that. I'm going to avoid this. I find this disgusting. I love this. And we mm-hmm. a- appeal to emotion all the time. And uh, yeah, I think. And it's- also is our, is our use of reasoning just to satisfy this emotional appeal to authenticity? Uh, what do you mean by that? Sorry. As in if, uh, one of the sort of kind of moral emotional principles is to, uh, 
kind of drive towards truth or authenticity or something genuine, even if sometimes that's actually not to the greatest of our benefit if we were to look rationally at it. I mean, you know, say if you were living a very comfortable life with your family and your wife cheated on you one time, um, but she never or she she lies to you, she never tells you and you continue living a life very happy and fulfilled that this uh, this would be sort of an example, at least if you were talking about kind of uh, psychological hedonism, you would be happier not knowing than knowing. I mean, there's plenty of situations that would kind of um, exemplify something like this. That, you know, sometimes this search for authenticity is in itself an emotional appeal um, and that our kind of when we're trying to reason through a moral situation, it can seem very rational and it could be because we're like looking for this authenticity. But is the project itself of looking for something genuine, something actually just emotional um, or an appeal to um, something authentic? an appeal to the truth, even if it's not to our benefit? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I'm going to go out slightly on a limb here, and I might be in the minority, but I'd, I'd like to know what your thoughts on this are. I would always say that it's better to know something than to not. Um, so I would much rather, well, I, I very much disagree with the ignorance is bliss thesis. Um, and I don't know whether that's probably, um, just cause I'm a philosophy student. And I like to overthink everything. Um, I don't know if that's like kind of aspiring to some rational goal or if that's just an, uh, an emotional appeal to kind of an, a sense of comfort in authenticity. Um, I couldn't say what that is, but yeah, I get what you mean. I think there's, there's a lot of cases where kind of yeah so reason is sort of guided by emotion and it can seem like they're on parallel tracks so you're thinking oh i'm making this rational decision i'm using my reason to do this when in reality mm. the whole time it's underpinned with um the passions and kind of what what you believe in all along maybe it's subconscious maybe it's unconscious i don't know but uh yeah yeah well i mean that's that's a good way to to think about it is like the ignorance is bliss I agree with you that I, I initially feel like that is an ethically right statement. That's a correct statement. Um, but then I also know that throughout my life, there's been situations where I probably would have rather not wanted to know something, or there's been times where people have told me something and I was kind of like, you know, I could have went the rest of my life kind of not knowing about the specific thing. Yeah. Um, and it makes it hard for me to actually use reason to justify why ignorance is bliss. And this is kind of one of the things where I go, maybe authenticity is in itself uh, kind of just another sort of emotional um, thing that we need to, to, to have satisfied. Yeah, I, th I think it's particularly telling um, that when Sartre talks about um, authenticity, I think in uh, his book, being a nothingness, um, he refers to it as when you're not being authentic. He calls it bad faith. He doesn't call it kind of breaking a, a rational principle. He calls mm -hmm. it bad faith. And I, I think that's particularly telling that maybe he feels like it's more of an emotional thing, like it's more of a, a sign of proprioceptive sense that you're not being true to yourself. And 
there's a kind of a guilt and an anxiety over the failure to meet that expectation that you set. And maybe that expectation you set through reason and rationality. But I think in order to meet that goal, it has to be done through an emotional appeal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a very interesting way to to think about it is is that searcher yeah he he uses the term faith he doesn't use the term um uh, bad um bad uh, sort of action or bad thinking or bad bad reason or anything like that he's very maybe he's he's aware of the fact that our um if we do want to find some sort of existential meaning or reason to live or life project that is firstly kind of found through something outside of reason, which I, I think when you hear people discuss um, finding out what they want to do in their life or uh, like who they want to become, at least for me, I get kind of, I, I don't like it when people just go, Oh, you just take this quiz online. And like, we would, we wouldn't want that. We wouldn't want yeah. to just be able to take an online quiz and then find out what we are doing for the rest of our lives. We kind of like the fact that there's some sort of ambiguity to it. There's something sort of mystical. Um, maybe it was something like in childhood that you were just sort of drawn to, but you don't really know why. And Sartre, I think is, is kind of elaborating on that in a sense. Um, and I, I guess they were also around the time where the whole rational project was being not necessarily thrown out, but heavily criticized. And, he definitely championed the idea of making yourself uh, beyond, you know, any sort of external influences. Yeah, I think this is definitely one of the reasons why I just cannot stand analytic philosophy. I really don't like <laughs> it when, you know, they, they try and substitute in all these things for, you know, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, P, Q, R. Mm -hmm. And it just takes away, well, it's like people say, it takes away the human element and, you know, by that, they must mean it takes away some emotional thing. You know, if you become too intellectual, people say things that are too intellectual, they're cold, you know, they're calculating. And mm -hmm. yeah, maybe that's what reason is. It's maybe it's supposed to be cold and calculating, but cold and calculating aren't very appealing terms. You know, the, the emotion comes with the warmth, you know, all these synonyms seem to interact and agree that the whole thing of the whole project of being human is to be first and foremost, an emotional creature. And I think this is where, um, you know, even the term meaning itself, it can't be fulfilled, like you said, with some sort of online checkbox or these criteria that you have to tick off. It's it's something, you know, the words people use to describe it, a fulfillment, flourishing, satisfaction. These are all emotional things. Yeah, the uh, it, it reminds me of, um, I think it's a philosopher, last name's James or, or Janes. And he studied these um, kind of ancient texts that were uh, pre-era uh, pre of Christianity, pre-Jesus. And he argues that the ancients kind of had uh, no real sense of free will. They thought everything was very predetermined and the gods kind of decided your fate. And that free will is kind of a, a new concept. And it might be a new concept in our sort of collective psychology and what you're talking about, this appeal to the emotional side of human beings, that might actually be fairly new in that 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 might just be kind of our, our sort of cultural idea that that 
we get to decide our fate and our fate is our own passions. And uh, I mean, to what extent it's kind of detached from the idea that our fate is from the passion of the gods, that there is still something kind of outside of like reason or, or will that gets a little bit confusing, but it is kind of, you know, in the same way we've been arguing that, that reason might not necessarily be this uh, deciding or this, this sort of um, most important factor of human nature this sort of uh, appraisal of of the free will of our own volition through emotion might also not be very uh, uh, essential if we go back far enough in time when our ancestors were were kind of just seeing life as this thing that is decided by the gods in heaven. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting how because um, you mentioned how free will is sort of new on the in the philosophical tradition of things and. Uh, yeah, it's sort of interesting how, in light of new neuroscientific discoveries and everything, it's the free will sort of going out the window again. So I wonder how that's going to have an impact on uh, people talking about this in the future. But uh, yeah, I think I think it's fair to say there's been, you know, since the sort of ancient Greeks, there's been a rise of rationality. Like, it's definitely a major part of the human psychology and we wouldn't be human without it. But I think it's unfair to give such a massive weight to it that it's more important than emotion. Yeah. I mean, I think going back to Hume's quote that, that reason is the slave to the passions. I think that's a, a fairly healthy way to go about like the, the chances that you can reason your way into discovering the meaning of life or your own sort of career path or who you want to be isn't just unrealistic it's also kind of depressing and there is just something kind of human about that you know we kind of use our emotions we just feel something we don't think something but we feel that something is right to do and then we use you know in the same way that Hume is discussing reason is this kind of tool that we use in order to achieve these things that are um essentially uh, originating from passion or emotion. Yeah, indeed. Like the emotions are, well, they're just the, the central sort of aspect. They are, well, I would say the emotions are what make us human. Um, I don't know what that means with regards to humans compared to animals, but like, yeah, it's just, yeah, you like, like you said, you can't, reason your way to find the meaning of your life you can't use your rationality to you know bring you satisfaction and fulfillment in your uh your friendships your relationships your career um mm -hmm. and, and what you perceive your life to be it just doesn't work like that um i think there's there's such a like delicate contingency between the kind of the trajectory of your life and just stuff that happens to be going on at the moment and stuff that you get distracted with stuff you do little kind of tangents that you find yourself going on paths you haven't walked before all these little things they sort of add up to make yourself as a person and they they wouldn't have happened if you just kind of you know sat at home like professor x or something and just tried to reason your way into uh into thinking like that no, that, I mean, that's a very good point, too, is that if you were ideally, you know, at the age of like 12, you just felt that you wanted to become a doctor or something like that. And, 
you know, you had no rational justification for it. You were just really drawn to it. And then you spent your whole life using reason in order to become a doctor. Who's to say that if uh, you were maybe to entertain your more kind of emotional, passionate side, that you would have strayed off this path of like reason and and uh, productivity and maybe found something that you were even more passionate about. Um, that there is, you're right, there's this sort of delicate interplay that life uh, kind of requires of you where you use reason to um, entertain your passions, but then also you kind of uh, refrain from using reason in order to actually determine what those passions are to begin with. That's, I mean, more or less probably what what living some sort of satisfactory life entails. Yeah, I mean, I don't doubt that reason definitely has its place. I mean, we would be um, remiss to say that scientists you know, use emotion to discover truths about the universe that just wouldn't match up. Um, mm. But this is why, this is one of the reasons why I think there will never be a complete sort of uh, commonality between science and philosophy or science and religion or science and ideology is because we need, there, there are certain areas that just can't be attacked using reason and that do appeal to the more emotional side of human nature and that that's okay. Like I don't think religion or ideology or philosophy has to be the thing that uses strict rationality and reason in order to tell you what to do because mm -hmm. the meaning of our lives doesn't work like that. You know, we're creatures, we're impulsive, we've got short tempers and we're easily distracted and we're imperfect. And of course, that wouldn't be of any use in the sciences where you're trying to find certainty and discover physical objective facts. But in the realm of sort of meaning where religion and philosophy comes in and uh, definitely, you know, plays a part in the work of Viktor Frankl, um, the emotional side is something that you just have to appeal to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that that's a, I think that was kind of a good way to, to also summarize the last uh, 20, 30 minutes was, there is some sort of uh and i and i guess this is going back to procrastination emotions kind of are are sort of uh masters in both the best of ways and the worst of ways and mm. uh reason sort of a check on its power i guess yeah i mean you could use the analogy of like a drug addict or something like emotion in that sense Yes, it's your sovereign master, but it's it's not doing you any good um, because it's it's a addictive and self-destructive habit. Um, but yeah, it can definitely you you need well you need both of them. You need to be kind of perhaps ruled by your reason, but led by your pa uh, ruled by your, sorry ruled by your emotion and led by your reason just to, to keep it on the right track. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good way to kind of formulate that. Um, and I think kind of in closing, kind of taking this all together, uh, boredom, procrastination, our sort of motives, like what drives us <clears throat> and how they should be driven, um, kind of leads to a simple question of what kind of gets you to get out of bed in the morning? What kind of drives you, both in sort of a, kind of general philosophical or psychological sense, but also just you personally, what kind of gets you kind of going to actually do things? Because, you know, 
we we do sometimes spend days just in bed procrastinating doing anything at all and that's when this question is incredibly apparent and then there's other days where we are excited to get out of bed immediately because we know exactly what we're doing so just kind of in a general sense how how would you answer that question of of what kind of gets you up in the morning oh well that's a very big question um i think you know with all my knowledge of philosophy quotes and different philosophers and what they've said i think it comes down to basically a metaphor <laughs> i don't know how strong or weak it is really but I just like to consider the day ahead as a blank canvas. You know, it's not a very original metaphor, but it works. It does the job. Um, I, I just like to imagine myself, how would I feel if I came to the end of the day and my canvas was still blank? How would that make me feel? Um, probably not very good because I'm, I tend to consider myself quite a creative person and I measure myself and my self-worth a lot on what my output is. And, you know, uh, how many pages I managed to write, how many scripts I managed to record, how many videos I managed to edit that day. Um, well, you know, I, I can apply that to my, you know, career and my family and my friends as well. But generally, I just have it in mind when I wake up every day that if my canvas is still blank and it's still staring at me, this blank page, almost like a writer's block, that's going to make me feel terrible. So I tend to structure my day what gets me out of bed is doing anything that I can that helps to put even a bit of paint on the canvas because that means I can go to sleep having the knowledge that I've done something with my day and I haven't let it gone to waste well that's yeah I, I mean that's actually a very good way to kind of I mean you're using your emotions and your kind of reason at the same time you're using reason to project into the future this sort of future emotional state of I still have a blank canvas and how would this make me feel? Um, so it is kind of a, it, that's an, that's a very interesting metaphor to kind of use because it does, it does kind of summarize what we've been talking about. The, the question I guess would be then what is it in you that would prefer something on that canvas over nothing? Uh, I would say, most probably the emotional side because mm. I can definitely imagine that I could reason myself into thinking, you know, Oh, but it's okay. There's, there's always tomorrow. There's so many more days after this, you know, you'll be fine. It's just one day. Just stop overthinking things. You'll be fine if you haven't done anything for one day. And, but no matter how much thinking and overthinking I know I do, that wouldn't take away the feeling that, yeah, but you haven't done anything with your day. Have you, this is going to make you feel awful. Um, mm -hmm. and maybe it's not the most positive outlook, <laughs> you know, just doing anything to avoid feeling awful with yourself at the end of the day. But, um, yeah, if it gets you to do something, and especially if you're, um, a creative minded person, like I'm sure you are just having something done, having some words on the pages, having some minutes of videos edited, it's, it's better than having done nothing at all. And it's, it's like bringing something into existence when nothing was there before. And that just helps to bring me fulfillment at the end of the day. Yeah. Do you think that there's something kind of essentially productive or in um, like in self-determination theory and psychology, they use the term organismic in that there's some sort of kind of desire to grow or um, reach some sort of op optimal functioning or uh, create creative uh, um, kind of, 
process that is it's just essential to human nature like we just can't going back to pascal we can't sit alone in a room all of our lives that there's just something that we just want to create that we just want to do something um do do, do you kind of uh, believe in that sort of line of thinking yeah definitely um especially just looking at the amazing fantastic technological advancements that the human species has made in the past hundred years, even up to recently with the, um, the invention of the coronavirus vaccine. Um, you know, if we were content with, uh, just sitting in a room alone with our thoughts, then we never would have landed on the moon. You know, we never would have done any of these things. Um, and I think perhaps, you know, if we fail to characterize humanity through emotional reason, I think the capacity for humanity to discover and be curious is what separates us out from everything else. Well, it's, it's a, uh, it reminds me of, I've been reading uh, Walter Isaacson's biography on Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah. And he is such an epitome of what you're describing that he's, he was so constantly, and it seemed like emotional. It seemed literally like, I mean, he, he was unable to finish a lot of projects because it was such an irrational sort of passionate drive to understand things and invent things and create things like he he was such a a human being in a way he was he was very kind of uh he he never really even complained about boredom because it, it almost seemed like he was incapable of being bored they there's so many passages about um what he'd write in his notebooks which were basically the equivalent of like modern day when we just google search things out of just you know kind of uh vague interest he would yeah. he would write down like what does a hummingbird's beak look like um how would you fortify a castle on like solid ground he would just be writing these things down and then he would just go out and like find them and he'd you know invent things draw things and it, and it, it there is something very inspiring about that this sort of sense of like a renaissance figure um as being this sort of symbol of humanity that they're they're in essence um driven by curiosity and self-growth and creation yeah definitely um i really don't think curiosity killed the cat um i strongly disagree with that statement yeah but uh yeah like you said um leonardo da vinci probably is the best encapsulation of that well i suppose it's a very renaissance idea um and yeah i just think human beings maybe it's just me maybe i'm just projecting but uh, I think, yeah, human beings just live to do something. And maybe boredom is the sort of baseline state from which they can then do something and make something of it, um, whether that's productive, whether it's not, whether it's creative, whether it's not. Um, whatever kind of direction you want to take it, people like to move away from boredom and towards something else. But... I don't think that undermines boredom's sort of importance as like almost like a literal springboard for these ideas. You know, it's the, it's the thing that our, our curiosity stems from is the fact that when we're bored, we want to do something. We want to go and find something out. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's sort of my opinion on it. I, I guess I'll, uh, I'll ask you what gets you out of bed in the morning. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, I would probably, 
agree with your sort of sentiment of kind of projecting into the future and kind of going, uh, how would I feel about this? Um, I mean, I know there's kind of an extreme or like, how do I feel about this if I did nothing all day? There's kind of an extreme example of that. Um, when you're going to make decisions or, you know, maybe you're sensing something you might regret doing or not doing. And you, you kind of imagine yourself on your deathbed, like 50 years from now, and you see your dying self wishing that you could go back in time and change the results of what happened. And then you actually, and then you pretend that that's you now is that you're the person that's on the deathbed going back in time to, uh, change the results. It it kind of reflects Frankel's uh, live as if you've already lived, um, uh, lived and you made all of the wrong decisions the first time. And this is like your second time around is kind of using this sort of uh, rational um, imagination of regret in order to justify doing something now. And then I, and then you go, well, why do you have to do this? it doesn't it doesn't seem like a very sort of initial instinct to have if you need to go through all of this uh, mental gymnastics in order to justify getting out of bed um and and yeah i think it goes back to that sort of at least for me personally i can say that growing and self-discovery and learning about the world seems to be an intrinsically rewarding process and kind of the main thing that would justify human existence is to experience that existence to the fullest, both in creating and experiencing. Um, and I, yeah, in the same way, I, I don't want to project because I'm sure there's people um, that you could meet that would say, I'm totally content with staying in bed all day with like doing very little, living a very simple life, that's very static and who's to say that they're also not just psychologically very healthy and they found their way to live. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. But, but for me, I think sort of creativity and experiencing and growing and accepting that it's going to always be a process without any sort of finality, um, except for the certainty of, your own mortality. I think that that's a very, very good motivation to get out of bed. Yeah, definitely. I think something we could, at least the vast majority of people could all agree with is that a human life isn't a means to an end. It is an end in itself. It is living for the sheer pleasure of living. So you might as well make it um, what you want it to be, fashion it yourself, make it exactly how you picture it would be if you were happy, you know, and then just sort of instantiate that and bring it into action. I think that's uh, the best we can hope for. And uh, like, just to bring it back to a point we were saying right at the beginning, it sort of walks that fine line between the familiar and the unknown. It, uh, that, that's where the meaning comes. I think like you've said multiple times, it's, it's the pursuit. It's not the, it's not the end. I think that's a, um, a great way to end this episode that was that pretty much summed up everything we talked about um do you have any final thoughts at all um oh good question i don't know <laughs> anyone listening keep exploring keep on doing things try new stuff out anything that you don't like you can always just you know leave it in the past just 
do stuff, figure out what you want to be, and then be it. Awesome. All right. Thank you for uh, coming on, Mistyverse. That was a huge pleasure. Great conversation. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you very much for having me. All right. No problem. Yep. And check out Mistyverse's channel. He's always releasing great content. Um, and uh, I'll see you next time. See you. Thank you. Goodbye.